Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I have a blog you can check out if you'd like. It's been a while since I've written in it, but I think there's some decent stuff there from back in the day. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You can send me an email to rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is June 1st, 2022. And wow, I have to confess that when I saw the date today, June 1st, 2022, I was thinking back to June 1st of 2021 and all the turmoil that college sports was in because of the NCAA's arrogance, incompetence, and mismanagement of the voluntary regulation of college sports. So you had their congressional campaign come to a sputtering end without getting this emergency preemption or any other federal protections and immunities. The Austin case didn't go the way they wanted. And I think because of that, this dormant commerce clause lawsuit really was uh, dead on arrival. So you had those three things just being taken off the table. So plans A, B, and C were just jettisoned. And their last option, their option D, was to dump. It was the D for dump. It was the dump option. And so Mark Emmert and the NCAA just opened the chute and dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions through this interim policy. And what has resulted is the appearance of chaos. But there was something else that happened at or about the same time a year ago that was really important. I thought it was important, and I've talked about about this quite a bit, but there's a bill that was introduced in the Senate by Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy and Vermont Independent Bernie Sanders, and it is called the College Athletes' Right to Organize Act, and it would have conferred upon scholarship athletes the status of employee and would have given them the right to engage in collective bargaining so that the NCAA and the Power Five would be forced to listen to the athletes' concerns, be forced to take the athletes' voice into account, be forced to think about the business and regulation of college sports through the eyes of the athletes, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries claim to serve. And the reason I want to talk about that bill is because almost a year later to the day or to the week, there was a forum, this symposium that the Drake Group sponsored. I talked about it in the last episode with regard to Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, a Democrat from New Jersey, withdrawing the revenue sharing component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. But what I want to focus on today is a panel discussion that occurred on the same day, May, May 19th, and it's titled Giving College Athletes the Right to Unionize. A centerpiece of this panel discussion was, ostensibly at least, from the description of the panel, a look at this bill that Murphy and Sanders put out about a year ago. Senator Murphy came and and spoke. He was a little bit late. I'm going to talk about the substance uh, of the hearing in a little bit, but I think it's important to 
set up this bill, what it attempted to do, and how the NCAA responded to it in 2021, a year ago, and then look at how the same bill was portrayed a year later after all of these consequential events of the summer of 2021, where the NCAA was really exposed as an empty shell of an institution with very little power and very little credibility and and very little capacity to be in charge of the voluntary regulation of college sports. And I'll note that I've talked about this Murphy-Sanders bill a couple of times in, in prior episodes. And I talked about it, let's see, on June 3rd of 2021 in episode 24 titled Current Events Chaos, where I looked at a lot of things that were going on, including the introduction of this bill. And this bill was introduced on May 27th of 2021. And then in February of this year, 2022, in episode 98. I did an episode on athletes as employees. Will the NCAA continue their totalitarian opposition? And I talked about this bill in more detail and compared its substance and purpose to the Jerry Moran bill in terms of how they treated the athlete as employee issue. So you can go back and and check that out. And I'm going to talk in a little more detail about how Senator Murphy described the purpose of this bill and what he was trying to accomplish. He addressed that at this Drake Group Symposium in this panel discussion. But I want to go back to May of 2021 to talk about how the NCAA and the media responded to this Murphy-Sanders bill. And as the NCAA does occasionally when it comes to legal issues and uh, congressional issues, they will immediately release a statement or essentially a press release, a propaganda press release, where they are proclaiming from their omniscient throne how they see this particular issue in litigation or in Congress. And they issued a statement. It's titled, The NCAA Statement on Murphy-Sanders Bill. And it's dated May 27th, 2021. And they didn't waste any time getting this out. I think they were locked and loaded and ready to go. Again, this is not a statement that's attributable to anyone. There's just... it's in quotes. The whole statement is in quotes, but they don't say who was speaking. So we really don't know. Again, this is the omniscient propagandist from the NCAA on high. And it says, college athletes are students and not employees of their college or university. This bill, the Murphy-Sanders bill, would directly undercut the purpose of college, earning a degree. The NCAA and its member schools support student-athletes through scholarships, many of which cover their full cost of education debt-free and numerous other benefits. NCAA members are also committed to modernizing name, image, and likeness rules so student-athletes can benefit from those opportunities but not become employees of their school. We will continue to work with members of Congress to focus on issues that align with our priorities, but turning student-athletes into union employees is not the answer. And that is a totalitarian No, hell no, to athletes being employees and the employee status is a precondition to meaningful collective bargaining. And in order to be recognized as a bargaining unit under the National Labor Relations Act, you first have to establish that you are a group of employees. And the NCAA has drawn a line in that sand, and that's a line they're going to defend and die defending. And they have made that quite clear. So as I transition into talking about 
this symposium and the panel discussion on unionization. I really want to keep front and center whether what we heard at this panel discussion is really any different in 2022 than what we heard in 2021 from the NCAA. And it's my belief that it is not much different at all. I think the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are still wedded to a militant opposition to athletes being employees or forming unions or having a meaningful seat at the table to have some input into how they are treated by the stakeholders who are making a lot of money from their labor. So I want to start with a description that's on the Drake Group website of what this hearing was about. And it says, Is it possible for Congress to give college athletes the right to unionize under the NLRA in order to create a better balance of power between athletes and their institutions? How important is it to retain the athlete's student relationship to the university? If athletes are allowed to unionize, should athletes aggregate by conference or or nationally? Would such athlete organizing power allow athletes to bargain for guaranteed five-year scholarships, long-term disability protection, reduction of hours spent on athletics obligations, and addressing abusive practices of coaches? And then it closes out, uh, the College Athlete Right to Organize Act, sponsored by Senator Christopher Murphy, was the focus of the discussion. So I want to do a little bit of setup here on this panel, who was on it and how it played out. And I guess I should just note that the uh, panel discussion lasted about an hour and 45 minutes. So uh, there was plenty of time for certain people to speak. And I'm going to link to the video in the show notes, and that will only be available on my podcast website, bigamateurism.com. That does not come through on the third-party directories. I think it's important to have access to this video so that you can hear for yourself what I heard, and you may agree or you may disagree with my interpretation. But I think it's worth a listen, even though it's long, and there are a few places where it gets a little bit deep in the weeds. So there were four panelists and one moderator. The moderator was uh, Andy Zimbalist, who is a professor at Smith College, which is a small school in Massachusetts. Athletically, they compete in Division Three, and they are a, a women-only school. They don't admit men. Professor Zimbalist's relationship to analyzing college sports goes back a long time, and he has written college sports. And I have a number of his books on my shelf, and I have read them. And one in particular that I think is a great framing of big-time college sports is his 1999 book, Unpaid Professionals, and the subtitle is Commercialism and Conflict in Big-Time College Sports. And then he teamed up with some other Drake Group members in 2017 to co-author Unwinding Madness, another really good book. And Professor Zimbalist is one of the founders of the Drake Group, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But his book, Unpaid Professionals, was cited by the United States Supreme Court in its Austin decision, the unanimous decision, when they were setting the context and the historical framing of big-time college sports. So that's very high praise. But I also think it's important to point out that the Drake Group itself, and I think some of Professor Zimbalist's writings and certainly what I heard at this panel discussion, do not align very well in my judgment 
with the interests of the revenue-producing athletes, the football and men's basketball players at Power Five institutions, whose talents and labors underwrite the entire big-time college sports marketplace. And when you look at the work of external advocacy organizations like the Drake Group, like the Knight Commission, and I, I actually feel this way about all of the alphabet soup nonprofits that have sprung up in the quote-unquote athletes' rights movement since I first got involved in the mid-1980s through, through Dick DiVenzio, who I've talked quite a bit about. But the way that I, I look at all of those quote-unquote advocates to try to tease out where they really stand, what's their starting point? What's your frame of reference, your basic construction of reality? And in my judgment, institutions like the Drake Group and people who are drawn to it, and I would include Professor Zimbalist in this, are instinctively drawn to protecting institutional interests first. And once those are protected, then we can talk athletes' rights. And then there are other advocates in the community, and I think I am on this side of the fence. I think so, too, is Senator Murphy. Chris Murphy. And I start with American values, American liberties, and individual rights, and freedoms, and free markets, and free competition. And you can't live in both of those worlds at the same time. And the, one of the biggest problems that we've had in the regulation of college sports and all the hypocrisies that have evolved is that we have tried to force those two irreconcilable belief systems into something that looks like a whole, a connected whole. And it's impossible because of the fundamental tension between those two views of the world. And if you are speaking the language of compensation limits, of not recognizing the possibility that athletes could be employees, that they might have a right to sit down at a bargaining table with the people who benefit from their labor and strike a fair deal. If you believe that they should only be, views, be viewed as students and you believe in amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model, you cannot at the same time believe in free and open markets. And that's essentially what a unanimous United States Supreme Court said in Austin. This amateurism defense as it was presented by the NCAA and has had been presented for 40 years after Board of Regents, is simply incompatible with free competition laws. They can't really go together. If your starting point is institutional interests, then you're in a much different place and you're going to land in a much different place than if your starting point is with athletes' rights and American freedoms and individual liberties and open and free markets. And I think when you go back and you look at the foundational value systems of organizations like the Drake Group and the Knight Commission, I think you see that the starting point is the protection of institutional interests. I've talked about that quite a bit in the context of the Knight Commission and the, this philosophy that's built around presidential leadership and control of the voluntary regulation of college sports, and it's been a miserable failure. And uh, the Drake Group's situated a little bit differently, I think, because I think they've wrestled with this tension and tried to do it in a productive way. And you go to their website and you look at some of the materials that they have, and it looks like they're really trying hard to speak the language of athletes' rights. I don't think that was their starting point, though. And so you have this kind of cognitive dissonance. And when I look at the materials that these advocacy groups put out, 
and then the, the comments of people who are affiliated with them. I just, I, I put on my cognitive dissonance seatbelt because thematically you're just getting whipped around. And I think that is a challenge. And I'm just, the way I've, I've characterized it is that I think advocacy groups like this whose starting point is really the protection of institutional interests, are speaking athletes' rights as a second language. It doesn't come naturally to them, or I should say to many of them. And I, I think that hearing the, the thinking and the experience of people to whom athletes' rights does come naturally is even more important. So I'll get to that in, in some other episodes. So the other people on this panel were Bob Costas, and he needs no introduction, as Professor Zimbalist said when he was introducing him. And he is one of the most accomplished sports casters and sports commentators in American history. So yeah, I'm interested in what Bob Costas has to say. It just turns out in this particular context, I disagreed with most of what he had to say. I'll get to that in a minute. Then we had Michael Hausfeld, and he is an antitrust attorney. He is a well-respected, well-known, and very accomplished antitrust attorney. He was lead counsel in the O'Bannon suit, the name, image, likeness suit. And then he also represented a small group of former UNC athletes in a suit against the NCAA and UNC, and this was in 2015, it was titled McCants versus NCAA. And in that lawsuit, the athletes were making the case that they had been academically exploited and, be, and that they were forced really to these fake courses that were a sham and that their educational experience was a sham. And the legal theory was that the NCAA and the UNC owed these athletes a legal duty to protect them from academic fraud. And it was wrapped in terms of mostly equitable claims, quasi-contract, fiduciary duty, and all that. But it really was designed to shine a light on the academic exploitation that occurs routinely in college sports. And UNC just became the face of it, but it happens everywhere across the Power Five landscape. And I'll just note that the NCAA filed a motion to dismiss that lawsuit as to the NCAA claiming that the NCAA didn't owe these athletes a damn thing. They owed them no legal duty whatsoever. And they have made that, that claim and taken that position in many other lawsuits, including lawsuits that go to health and safety where injured athletes or the families of athletes who have uh, died because of uh, breaches of health and safety protocols have sued the NCAA claiming that they had a legal duty to have enforceable health and safety standards and that the absence of those standards and the absence of uh, the enforcement of them caused the harm. And the NCAA said, up yours, we owe you nothing, zilch, no legal duty. And they've been successful in that, in part because the NCAA doesn't have a direct connection to the athletes. The athletes are not members of the NCAA. Only the member institutions are. And Mr. Hausfeld's comments at this symposium were really interesting, and I'll get to those a little more specifically. But he ultimately brought in some athlete-friendly narratives, but he started off right down the line with the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries on some of the most important issues that were supposed to be the, the topic of discussion. 
in here. And then we had uh, Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, Democrat from Connecticut. And he came late. He didn't get there until about 30 minutes in. And that was a really important timing issue as this discussion evolved, because by the time that Senator Murphy got there to talk about this bill, this athlete's rights, uh, right to organize bill, the template was set. And he was already forced on the defensive to try to make the case for just allowing the athletes to have a seat at the bargaining table. And how that happened is really what I want to talk about because it shows the ease with which in-system stakeholder beneficiary values and viewpoints can just overwhelm any opposing view or any opposing voice. And then Last and certainly not least is a woman named Kaya McCullough, and she is a former UCLA soccer player. She played professionally, and then she formed a, an organization designed to fight racism in the sport of soccer. And I should note that Ms. McCullough is African-American. And the, the reason that I put her last is because she was reduced and marginalized to a tiny corner of this discussion. And she was there to speak about the athlete's perspective on these issues. What's the world like for athletes? And you cannot have an intelligent discussion about unionization and the employee status that's a predicate for that without talking about the work conditions without talking about the role that you play as a putative employee and an athlete at a big time university. It's a fact-based inquiry and you have to make the case in detail of what your working conditions are and how you are being mistreated if you want to sit at a table to correct the inequities in an unfair labor relationship. So what Kaya McCullough had to say should have been the most important component of this entire discussion. And in an hour and 45 minutes, she was marginalized to five minutes. And I will say this, that's why I put her last. But if I were ranking these participants in terms of the value of what they had to say. She's number one. She did more in five minutes than these other people did in uh, long colloquies <laughs> where they had plenty of time to make their case. And I don't think they made it nearly as effectively or concisely as Ms. McCullough did. So now I want to talk about how this issue was teed up by Symbolist and then Costas. Costas went first and he had plenty of time. He went for, I don't know, 13, 14 minutes after the intro question. And I'm going to get to that. But I want to look at this through the lens of how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been so successful at dictating the terms of the debate. And when you have that opportunity, that is a very powerful advantage. I talked about that in the context of the NCAA and Power Five and their congressional campaign, where they hit the ground running. And through 2020, when the Republicans had control of the Senate, they really set the terms of the debate, the discussion, the scope of federal legislation, the terms of federal legislation. And that basic template got cemented in, and it really hasn't changed. And I think you saw this happen in, a, in an hour and 45 minutes in this panel discussion. And what happened in that initial framing through what Costas had to say, then it was reinforced by uh, Hausfeld, and the way that Zimbalist handled his duties as moderator, he took a little bit of license 
I think. And I don't think he left a lot of doubt as to where he stood. And before Senator Murphy came to defend his bill, I think that the panel had already reached its conclusion. And that's the way it played out. It wasn't an open-ended discussion. There was advocacy here. And the question wasn't how we could try to create an employment relationship or how we could get the athletes to have a seat at the table through collective bargaining. It was whether athletes should be employees at all, whether there should be a union at all, which was a values judgment, not an inquiry into how this could happen. All the debate in that first 20 minutes was about why it couldn't happen, not just at a practical level, but why it was bad at a values level. And I'm not sure, quite frankly, that if you read the title of this this panel discussion and then the description of it on the website, that you would have thought you were going to be treated in the first 20 minutes to a lecture on the sanctity of the student part of student-athlete. And that is exactly what we got. So the, the problem with that, that framing is that it creates the false consensus they initially frame the discussion around parameters that everybody agrees on. And if everybody agrees, how could you possibly disagree? That was the template that was set in Congress in that very first hearing on February 11th of 2020. When the NCAA ran to Congress, Congress didn't come to the NCAA. And the NCAA was asking for this set of really extraordinary federal protections and immunities to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And you had uh, five witnesses spouting the NCAA Power Five party line and only one opposing it. And the image and the impression that came out of that hearing is that no reasonable person could disagree with the majority view of that panel. And I think there was an element of that that occurred before Senator Murphy sat down behind the microphone. And you had Andy Zimbalist, Bob Costas, and Michael Hausfeld offering different iterations of no employee and no union. Hausfeld came around to put some nuance on that later on, saying that he thinks that there's a way, perhaps, to have athletes have a seat at the table without formal collective bargaining, but we didn't get a lot of discussion on that. I would have loved to have heard more on that option. And there were two important sub-narratives that drove the false consensus that, no, this just can't happen. Athletes can't be employees. Athletes can't unionize. And one is that it's impossible. It's just too difficult. It's too complex. There's so many moving parts. There's no way that we can do this. This is more complicated than curing cancer or having a colony on Mars. That's the way they portray these kinds of issues without any detailed discussion about why. And that feeds into another false narrative, and that is that these people make the commonplace seem extraordinary, and then they make the extraordinary seem commonplace. They make the commonplace seem extraordinary by talking about all the ways that this issue is so complicated. It's, it's just so, so complicated. I just don't think we could ever make it happen. Well, that's true in large part because of these un-American compensation limits that you're also insisting upon to create this false dilemma. But you're not giving it a lot of thought. You're not giving a whole lot of thought to making it happen. But look, there are 165 million employees in the United States of America. There is nothing extraordinary about being an employee. Don't we want people to be an employee? Isn't that a good thing? And 
those employees work in an infinite array of contexts, each of which has its own complexities and its own difficult problems, but the market solves those problems. There are hundreds of unions in this country that cover all kinds of industries, and a lot of them are designed to protect the interests of unique laborers, like pilots or elevator construction employees or people involved in mining or high-risk jobs. That's a good thing in this country. And there are millions and millions and millions of Americans right now who are members of unions, including athletes in eight separate unions. And that the professional model came up and it was all gloom and doom and the differences in the pro-union models versus how they could conceive a college union model. And it was all, no, 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 this can't work. And I'll just give you an example. So Michael Helsfeld, who I, th I think his heart's in the right place, but he was really early on in his comments singing the tune of the status quo. And he was yesing everything that Bob Costas had to say. But he said, look, what do we do about the longevity issue? These athletes are only here for five years. And how do you have a self-sustaining union when the workforce is that unstable? And then what do you do about retired athletes, but athletes who have used their eligibility and then they're on to the next thing, whether it's in professional sports or otherwise, how do you treat them? And I'm just thinking, wow, that's an interesting limitation that, that you conceived. Because when you look at the average lifespan of an NFL or an NBA player, they are substantially less than five years. I think it's maybe three and a half in the NFL, maybe four in the NBA. These guys come and go. It's a turnstile because of the level of competition and also how frequently these guys get injured and just are taken out of the labor pool. In that unique market, with these short lifespans, they found a way to make it work. And those kinds of issues are solvable. And there's a template for it. But when you look at how the issues were portrayed at this panel discussion, it was one obstacle after another. And they just kept building and building and building. And I think most people listening to this who didn't know that much about the debates on issues like this in college sports would come away thinking there's no way. There's no way that these athletes can be employees and th there's no reason why they should be. If you listen to Bob Costas's values-based arguments for rejecting athletes as employees and athletes forming a union. That is a powerful, powerful dynamic. These narratives aren't coming from some Joe Blow sports journalist in a small market. This is coming from Bob Costas and Michael Hausfeld. He's not a household name, but if you are familiar with his resume, that he is a heavy hitter in antitrust law and in athletes' rights because of his involvement with O'Bannon. And Zimbalist is, if you know his background, he's a heavy hitter in the academic community in athletes' rights. And he has enormous influence, and he should. And all these guys should have influence. But you have these very powerful people saying the same thing, and it's all no, no, no. And when Ms. McCullough had her opportunities, very brief opportunities to speak, she was trying to reorient that discussion. And ultimately, I think she was pretty successful at it, even with the limited time that she had. But 
in her early comments when she was trying to say, wait a minute, th there's some other issues here to think about. And it's nice to talk theoretically about this world that you want to live in, where you have the Norman Rockwell student athlete world. That's nice to talk about, but that's not the reality. I'm here to express the reality. She said that and she acknowledged that. And it was really, I think, spot on. She nailed the dynamic of that panel hearing immediately. And after her first comments, and they lasted maybe 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, Zimbalist, as the moderator, didn't recast the discussion or weave her thinking into what you had heard for the prior 20 minutes. Andy just said, thank you, and then turned to Bob on a completely different topic. It just, it came across to me as dismissive. And I got the impression that when Ms. McCullough was uh, speaking, Zimbalist and, and the other panelists weren't listening to what she had to say. They were waiting to speak. So I want to talk quickly about how this issue was framed right off the, at the beginning and then how it just stayed on this path and, and never really recovered in, in my judgment. And there was a Q&A afterwards that went to some, I think, really uncomfortable things that, that Costas had to say that I'm not sure he adequately addressed that relate to some racial issues. But so you had uh, Zimbalist introducing the panelists and all that stuff. And then he starts with Bob and he says, Bob, I think nobody understands the landscape of U.S. sports better than you do. If you could kick us off before we started focusing more directly on unionization or the possibility of unionization of college athletes, if you could just kick us off with some thoughts on the state of college sports today and possibilities for its reform. And right there, it, it, you have an important framing that really has very little to do with the topic that this panel is supposed to be talking about. So we're not going to talk about unionization. We're going to talk about your thoughts on the state of college sports today. And then, and then Costas says, I'm going to present a, a general thoughts. And I'll defer to those on the panel, like Senator Murphy, who might have more specific expertise about some of the legal aspects or some of the other things that, relating to his bill and to unionization. But before we get to that, we have to talk about some larger issues. And he says, we commonly hear this phrase, everybody's getting rich off of this except the athletes. And I don't think that was an accidental choice of phrase. Everybody's getting rich off of this except the athletes. And that phrase, everyone's getting rich off of this business except the athletes, was a tagline of Senator Murphy's. And he did a series of white papers under this theme, Madness, Inc., and the very first one was under that tagline, and it really became the signature line from Senator Murphy and uh, his uh, advocacy on athletes' rights. So I don't think that was coincidental at all, and it was really a, a frontal attack on that theme, that thesis that Senator Murphy has been using. And then uh, Costas goes into a discussion about the value of education and how these kids are getting something that has enormous value that they just don't appreciate. And he's back to the same propaganda that we have heard for decades from the NCAA and from the Mark Emmerts of the world. And quite frankly, listening to Costas' opening comments, he sounded a hell of a lot like Mark Emmert. 
And I don't know if that's where he wanted to land, but that's how it came across to me. And then he says, so college presidents need to have the courage to just say, look, we're going to monitor our admissions, not so much with rowing or tennis or field hockey, but in the revenue sports where the corruption takes place and the exploitation happens. The revenue producers in football, immense basketball, and, and in many instances now, women's basketball. We want to monitor those admissions to make sure that every student athlete that is admitted to our university meets the minimum standards that any other student who was not an athlete would have to meet. And then he talks about, yeah, we'd have to allow for some exceptions, but they have to be legitimate and we have to look at backgrounds and there may be some students with special abilities that can't be measured in grade point averages and that includes athletics, but you know, that none of that special admission stuff justifies someone who's functionally illiterate being admitted to any university. Somebody who's functionally illiterate being admitted to any university. So let's just stop right there. In that framing, he is basically saying that there is a class of revenue-producing athletes that are simply unfit for membership in the academic community. He doesn't talk about where those athletes are, how many of those athletes are, or any specifics. We don't get any details, and I, I'll note the irony of that, because Zimbalist later on, when he was openly criticizing Murphy after Murphy talked and then left to go back to Capitol Hill, this symposium was in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club, so it was in D.C., and Murphy came over between Senate things, and then he had to go back, so he didn't stay the whole time. But after that, Zimbalist said, Murphy doesn't want to talk about details, but I, I think it's essential that we talk in details because the devil's in the details. Well, he wasn't real keen on, on pressing for details when Costas made this really a sweeping declaration about the unfitness of athletes in football and men's basketball. And that's a wow. That's a wow statement. And then he goes on to acknowledge that different schools have different standards, but he said that uh, university presidents should declare that nobody gets into our university unless they can meet the basic standards of this university if there weren't football and men's basketball. And I think you have to acknowledge the demographic of those athletes. And Costas was really fast and loose here. He's saying, oh yeah, rowing and field hockey and tennis, they're okay. And those sports in the Power Five, and this is these discussions are only relevant to the Power Five. All the stuff about employee and unionization has very little consequence once you move down the economic food chain in college sports. But those sports are overwhelmingly white. And the demographic of big-time football, and more particularly big-time men's basketball, is overwhelmingly black. And the race issue didn't come up in an intelligent way until over an hour into this discussion. And that was only after Miss McCullough laid the foundation for it to be relevant. But when you're talking about the most valuable athletes in big time football, men's basketball, and the athletes who are most likely to be subject to the special exceptions in the admissions process, you're talking about African-American 
Man, the demographics of those two classes of athletes is not disputable. It is objectively provable. And Costas is stuck with that, but he doesn't acknowledge who these people are. And it just demonstrates a tone deafness that, yeah, I'm going to avoid commenting on my personal thoughts on it. Uh, he, he had a couple of other doozies. One, he said, yeah, not only are these guys unfit, but a lot of times coaches bring in guys who are criminals. So they're they're unfit for admissions. These, these football men, basketball players who are functionally illiterate. And they're also, sometimes they're criminals. So that's a problem. And then he pulls out this canard that you hear from Mark Emmert and heard it from in this op-ed that Jim Delaney and Val Ackerman did in 2016. Athletes aren't exploited. They're educated. And they talk about how all these athletes leave debt-free and how most uh, parents of uh, college students are, are working their butts off and scraping money together. And Costa says they're working two and three jobs so that this athlete could be sitting next to some student whose parents had to work two or three jobs to pay for their tuition. And what image is he conjuring up there? Is He's looking at that kid who, whose parents are, are scraping together money for tuition. Is he thinking about a black middle-class family? Or is he thinking about a white middle-class family? What do you think most people hearing that statement would conclude? I know what I concluded. But what's more important is what would an African-American athlete conclude? An athlete, particularly an African-American athlete in a revenue-producing sport. In response to those comments, there was pushback, both by Ms. McCullough in a very nice way, but I think direct way. And then in the Q&A afterwards, there were a couple of questions. The first one, I don't know if, if the questioner was African-American from the question, I, th I think she might have been. The second question came from an African-American man who was actually on a panel at that symposium. And he played football at Hampton University in HBCU. And he just came out and said, when you're talking about the type of student that's fit to be admitted to a university, and you're talking uh, about the comparative interests of these functional illiterates and then these kids of parents who are working three jobs to, to pay for their kids' tuition. Who exactly are you talking about? He said, you have to be real careful about the language that you use here. He was telling Costas that what Costas had to say had racial overtones. And Costas made enough legitimate points in his monologues that I think some of the power of those really unfortunate comments were neutralized a little bit. And Costas, at least, he talked about it in terms of university presidents being responsible for making those decisions. I like that. And then he went through these absurdities that make a mockery of athletes as primarily students. And he talked about the travel schedules, and he talked about the fact that football players are playing games before they take a single class. He talked about forcing some of these players in, in Power 5 schools to take the field during COVID when the rest of the university was shut down. But where does he land? He lands with education. It's all about education. And in that framing, Costas is living in what I call the as-if world. I think what he's saying is that we shouldn't be in this business the way that we're in this business. And we need to put our decision-making where our rhetoric is 
And we need to cut back on commercialization, cut back on professionalization. All the things that Miles Brand was saying in 2001, before he became the NCAA president, and then he uh, formulates this collegiate model five years later that demands the maximum financial exploitation of uh, football and men's basketball players. So Costis is creating this as-if dilemma where because he thinks that the system is corrupt and it should be operating a different way, he lives in that fantasy world, not the one that exists, not the world of reality. He exists in the fantasy world and says, this is the way it should be. And because we're not doing it this way, then the people who are participating in the reality of this world that I think shouldn't exist are illegitimate. And that is a powerful dynamic, and it is far more widespread than most people understand. It is a belief that is very common in fact faculties and discussions and faculty lounges. And the notion here is that, look, if these guys have no business being here, how can they be exploited? And that was the language that Costas was speaking. And as I've discussed many times before in this podcast, that way of thinking has the effect of, regardless of its intent, it has the effect of delegitimizing the value of the laborers in football and men's basketball. And that uh, way of thinking lets you off the hook from looking at the reality that these athletes live in. And that's what Kaya McCullough was trying to get across. She was saying, and the way that she phrased it, I think was really perfect. She said, look, I understand the, the theoretical issues you're raising. And I understand that theoretically, we should have a world where education matters. But the fact of the matter, it doesn't. From her experience, she came to believe that the educational component was being thrown under the bus. That was the reality. So for Bob Costas to say, we're not going to look at that reality and engage in common sense reform to address that the unfairness of that reality, whether it is academic exploitation or financial exploitation. We're just going to pretend that those interests aren't legitimate because it shouldn't be that way. That's a silly framing of the values in college sports. And that is one of the biggest barriers for the athletes' rights movement. And, and uh, Zimbalist, I think, is in the same category. And he, he's more from a, a faculty standpoint. I just never cease to be amazed at how academicians who are looking at big-time college sports can not see the racial component in the exploitation model. These people are hypersensitive to racial issues in every other context except big-time college sports. Just like all these, all of a sudden, these guys aren't black. They cease to be black once they put on a football uniform or a basketball uniform. And the reason that's such a problem is that you have a similar delegitimization narrative coming from the administrators and the coaches and the athletics directors, the conference commissioners, the NCAA, all their propagandists and lawyers and lobbyists. And it all lands in the same place. And that is these athletes, they 
don't have value. And look at all the wonderful things they get. And that is part of this false narrative that these athletes have no market value independent of their affiliation with their school, their program, and their coach. And Bob Costas made that argument explicitly. He said, look, these guys would be nothing without their schools and the history of the schools and the tradition and the fans and the emotional connection of the fan base to the school and all of these things. And that is one of the grand lies in big time college sports. The NCAA used the same thing when it came to name, image, and likeness. And they said that these guys have no independent name, image, and likeness value outside of their relationship to their universities. That has been disproven in the actual market. High school athletes are getting name, image, and likeness money before they commit to a school. And that means they obviously have market value independent of the institution. You're going to tell me that Zion Williamson didn't have market value independent of Duke University and Coach K and uh, college basketball in in that tradition-rich program? Zion Williamson carried college basketball this freshman year. And the Mark Emmett's of the world can preen about one and done and how awful it's been. But without one and done, Mark Emmert and the NCAA and the ACC and Duke University don't get a year of Zion Williamson. <laughs> Say to Zion Williamson, you have zero market value outside of your relationship to any university in the Power Five. It's a ridiculous argument on its face. So you have the direct beneficiaries of athlete labor trying to minimize the value to justify not paying them. And then at the same time, you have an entirely different class of stakeholders, the the faculty interests and the institution academic interest, saying that these guys have no value because they have no business being here. And if they have no business being here, how can they be of value to this university and how can they be exploited? So these two fundamentally different stakeholder groups who really don't have a whole lot in common and where there's been tension over the years, when it comes to the value of these athletes, they land in the same place and it is little to no value. And we got more talking points from Costas. Yeah, I'm I'm in favor of name, image, and likeness, and I'm in favor of stipends, but that's it. That's it. So that's the nil wall I've talked about. And he says no to employee status. It's not going to work. And he says he's a skeptic of the direct employer-employee relationship. He said it would further corrupt what should be the relationship, the student-athlete relationship. And these degrees are worth a million dollars, all that stuff. Although Costas does acknowledge that he never graduated from college. He was six credits shy of graduating from Syracuse. And he took a job with a media outlet that really launched his career. And he said it was a great decision for him and it worked for him. And he knew that he needed to take this opportunity and he embarked on his career. And he said he did the same thing that Michael Jordan did. And both of them left in good standing. And that was how he distinguished his experience from other athletes who who don't stick around to get a college degree. I don't want to belabor that point, but I wonder if it's fair to ask if Costas hadn't taken that job and he had stayed and gotten that Syracuse degree, that million dollar degree, where would he be? Would he have lost this opportunity? Was this just that serendipitous first job that sent him on a trajectory that led to one of the most distinguished careers in the history of sports broadcasting? Would he have had that opportunity if he had gotten that million-dollar degree and stuck around at Syracuse? Who knows? Who knows? And then we go to 
Mr. Hausfeld, and he jumps right on that train. It's just too complicated. He doesn't think athletes should be treated as employees, and he doesn't think that unions are the answer. So right there, that's a series of no's. And he just says, I don't believe that unionization is the answer. He says there are academic issues, economic issues, gender issues, medical issues, health and safety. And he says all those things could be addressed by an association. And by that, I think he means something less than a union. But what that is, he doesn't quite say. But the overarching message that that I took away from Mr. Hausfeld's comments um, to to set the, the framework for the discussion is that employees know and unions know. And then we had Senator Murphy joining the discussion, and and he received that award, which was a very nice and well-deserved reward because Senator Murphy has really been a champion for athletes' rights. And and he has a very practical approach, and I really like the way that he talks about the issues. And I think he does a good job of taking some of the steam out of the in-system stakeholder beneficiary narratives, the, the false narratives that have been an impediment to having an intelligent discussion about what's possible for athletes and their relationship to the institutions that benefit from their labor. And I want to talk about a few of the things that Senator Murphy said at the very beginning in framing how he thought about this particular bill, the Right to Organize Act, and how he conceptualized it and where it fit into the broader discussion about athletes' rights and Congress's role in potentially regulating in athletes' rights. And I guess I should also note the irony. After uh, seeing Senator Murphy receive this award and the wonderful things that Donna Lopiano had to say when she gave him that award and all the great work he's done on behalf of athletes' rights and education and transparency and all the things that really need our attention in this discussion. And we transition from that award to uh, Murphy having to defend his bill. And he was on his heels from the very beginning because of the way the issues were framed. And then Andy Zimbalist conducted a cross-examination. He, he should have sworn Senator Murphy in. You know, <laughs> It had that feel to it. And there was nothing that Senator Murphy could say that was going to satisfy Zimbalist because, in my judgment, Zimbalist had made up his mind that the employee issue was a bad issue and the union issue was a bad issue and the bill was a bad bill. So Zimbalist gives Murphy kind of an open-ended question just to talk about his bill. And I think that was a good way to start it off. Senator Murphy begins really by viewing the the purpose of this bill in the context of civil rights and that the battle for basic protections and rights for athletes, for college athletes, is one of the important civil rights debates of our time. And I could not agree more with that assessment. But that tells you what Senator Murphy's starting point is. It is with athletes' rights and civil rights, which means, of course, he's looking at this through the lens of people in our society who have been marginalized because of their skin color or their sex or their ethnicity or their religion. This is a battle that goes to the heart of American values. And I think in the context of college sports and college athletes and the way that the business model is structured, when you frame this issue through the lens of civil rights, you are looking square on at the rights of African-American men, perhaps the most marginalized demographic group in American 
history and the talents and labors of African-American men in big-time football and men's basketball underwrite the entire big-time college sports industrial complex. And I think what's uh, so important about Senator Murphy's advocacy is that he has been consistent in putting those fundamental civil rights and American liberties on the table as the first order of business. And then we'll get around to the institutional interest. The institutional interest should follow American values and the protection of civil rights. The uh, advocates for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the status quo have it the opposite way. They want to start with satisfying the institutional interests. And then if there's any space left over after that, then we can talk about athletes' rights. And that is, in my judgment, turning this discussion upside down and inside out. And that played out in real time in this discussion. So Senator Murphy then makes a reference to the regulatory dysfunction in college sports. And he goes right to the heart of the, the problem in the regulation of college sports. And he's says, how do we set the rules right now? And this whole battle, as I've discussed, and actually the, the theme on which this podcast is based, is that the NCAA and the Power Five and the institutions believe that they and they alone should have the exclusive authority to regulate in college sports. They don't want federal courts involved. They don't want state legislatures involved. They don't want federal agencies involved, and they don't want these athletes to have basic rights, including the rights that they would have as employees. So this has been about who gets to decide, and the NCAA has driven the voluntary regulatory plane into the side of the mountain. Now they are begging Congress for a bailout. That's the context in which Senator Murphy, as a United States senator, has to operate. And it's so important to remember that the NCAA and the Power Five came to Congress. Congress didn't come to the NCAA. Senator Murphy didn't come to the NCAA. These, these senators who have been forced into this discussion really against their will, because I think Senator Murphy makes it pretty clear that uh, he thinks that you better be careful what you're asking for if you want the federal government to regulate in college sports. And I love that part of what he had to say, and I wish that Zimbalist had focused more on that, because that's really uh, more important than, uh, than the debate points that Zimbalist was trying to rack up while he was cross-examining Senator Murphy. But Senator Murphy is looking at this with the benefit of a context that I think was lost on Zimbalist, and it's an important one. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute. But here's how Murphy talked about this piece of legislation, again, in the context of the NCAA running to Congress really in 2019 when they began their lobbying campaign, and then through all of these ridiculously oppressive Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly bills that came out in 2020, like the Rubio bill, like the NCAA bill, like the Roger Wicker bill, and then in 2021, like the Moran bill, and then the Steve Shabbat bill in the House. All of those bills were just going to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And I think that context was implicit in the way that Senator Murphy was talking about this piece of legislation. And in those bills that I just listed, all of them had draconian provisions that would have prevented athletes from being deemed employees under federal or state 
law and those uh, proposed bills, which were supposed to be relating to name, image, and likeness, included these expansive provisions, the categorical provisions that would have eliminated the possibility that athletes could be deemed employees. And that prohibition has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. It was a dishonest inclusion, and there cannot be an employer-employee relationship in the name, image, and likeness market because th those deals can only be done with third parties, not the universities. And, you know, the NCAA was getting away with that fraud through their Republican allies in the Senate until June of 2021 when Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat from Hawaii, called out Mark Emmert and said, what the hell does this no employee thing have to do with name, image, and likeness? And the honest answer is nothing. So you have these senators and the NCAA and the Power Five by stealth trying to eliminate any possibility that these athletes could be employees with no discussion with no debate. And it's important to point out too that that no employee prohibition is included in many state laws, but we didn't have any discussion about that aspect of the anti-union campaign and the anti-employee campaign. But I think that was the context in which Senator Murphy and Senator Sanders were looking at their bill. It was a response to that extraordinary overreach by NCAA and Power Five, both at the federal level and then to a lesser extent at the state level. So uh, Senator Murphy says, the simplest way to decide what the rules are going forward about endorsements, and I think he's talking about nil there, about revenue sharing, about health and safety protocols, is for the athlete to be in a conversation with the schools, to have a discussion between those that are most affected by the rules as to what they are going to be going forward. That's his goal. And that voice, that athlete voice that the NCAA has dishonestly propagandized as the driving value in all of their legislation. And they use this in this constitutional makeover. And I've talked quite a bit about that. I mean, it was just a shameless propaganda to create the illusion that all these constitutional changes were influenced by the athlete voice and were being made in the best interest of the student athlete. But Senator Murphy knows that that's simply not the way it works. And he knows that the way this thing really works is that the NCAA and the Power Five, through their lawyers and lobbyists and public relations machines, they come in under the cover of darkness and try to push through federal legislation that would end the athletes' rights movement with zero student voice. And when we're talking about student voice, I just want to make one observation. That came up in this symposium time and time again. It came up in that panel discussion that Cory Booker was talking about on the Athletes' Bill of Rights. It came up in connection with this discussion and also with the name, image, and likeness panel. We gotta have the student athletes involved. We gotta have the student athletes involved. But guess what? Over seven hearings in the United States Congress, six in the United States Senate across three different committees, and then a hearing in the House in 2021, not a single revenue-producing athlete from a Power 5 school, a football or men's basketball player. And, and that obviously that includes any African-American Power 5 football or men's basketball player. Not a single one testified at any of these hearings. Not one. Not one. So how in the world can you be talking about the importance of the athlete voice and 
not have the very athletes who you claim to be listening to have a seat at the table. And that same dynamic plays out at all these symposiums. I don't know how many of these I've listened to over the last couple of years, or actually almost three years now. You don't see the African-American revenue-producing athletes in football, men's basketball, sitting behind a microphone, either in Congress or in these symposiums, to tell their story. Because that is not a story that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries want to be told. And it's not a story that the Republican senators who are carrying the bags for the NCAA and the Power Five want to be told in a public way where the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have to respond. And then in the only hearing that was driven in part by the athlete voice, and that was the June 17th hearing in Senate Commerce, where you had three African-American women and then the father of an African-American Power Five football player. But we didn't have a Power Five football and basketball player there. They were uh, very good witnesses, and they said some incredible things. But these voices were not the voices of the people whose labors underwrite this entire business model. But even in that setting, what did the Republicans do? What did Roger Wicker do? It came up with some BS objection to the hearing because they didn't have control of the witness list. And then they sat it out. It was effectively a boycott. And the only Republican who attended that hearing was Jerry Moran. He made a cameo and he was out of there like crap through a goose. Do you think that the Republicans want to listen to the athlete's voice? Doesn't sound like that to me. Doesn't sound like that to me at all. Which makes the advocacy of someone like Senator Murphy all the more important. So all Senator Murphy is asking for here is a pathway for the athletes to have a seat at the table. That's his primary motivation. This bill is the conduit for that because it forces the NCAA and the Power Five to permit the athletes to have a seat at the table. And it's not going to happen through uh, voluntary regulation or through uh, a voluntary decision by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries if their past behavior is any guide to how they're likely to behave in the future. And they've made promises and promises and promises and athlete voice, athlete voice, and that's all a bunch of BS. And then Murphy goes on to, I think, acknowledge the, the context in which this bill was proposed. And he says, as much as the NCAA wants the federal government right now to step in, I would just be careful what you wish for. I mean, I just don't know that it is in anybody's best interest for the federal government or the FTC to be regulating college sports. He's absolutely right about that. And that is a practical acknowledgement, and I think would have been a really good launch point for a more thorough discussion about the role of Congress in, in all these issues. And then he, he makes an important observation here, too. He says, once you get a law passed, it's there for good and you're stuck with it and you can't come back and easily amend a law or repeal a law. So you you need to be careful because he says the way he puts it is you're stuck with that law forever. And he's I think he's correct about that. And he said that he had been wary of proposals to have the federal government get involved in that sort of day to day regulation of college sports. And then he also said there also is a problem with state governments having their own rules. I don't know if I agree with him on that because the NCAA complies with different state laws in so many aspects of the business operations. They don't seem to be too worried about uh, the burgeoning sports betting market, which is governed by state law now after the PASPA was declared unconstitutional in 2018. So there are all kinds of hypocrisies in the way that the NCAA has pitched their need for federal intervention. But he then goes on to say, Senator Murphy goes on to say, that he is really looking at a market-based solution. But I think that the money quote here from Senator Sanders is when he says, so to me, 
the middle ground really is to allow the parties to decide for themselves what the rules are. And then he says that to me is the market-based solution. And I think he's absolutely right. But what he's saying here is that he isn't that concerned about union versus no union, employee versus no employee. He wants the athletes to have a seat at the table. And this bill would force the NCAA and the Power Five to grant the athletes a seat at the table. But the pathway to that is through recognizing their rights under federal law, protectable rights to have that seat at the table. And a precondition to that is uh, these athletes being deemed employees. And that's, the, that's a necessary corollary in, in terms of getting your federal labor laws protected. You need a, the rights of a collective bargaining unit, and you can't have those rights unless you are a group of employees. So that's why this Sanders-Murphy bill says these athletes are employees, and then that entitles them to all of the federal protections that would guarantee that they have a seat at the table. And, and then uh, Zimbalist comes in with a litany of questions. Some of them are interesting. He makes the point, well, why should athletes be treated specially? Because this bill would solve the public-private issue by basically saying that the public em employers would be covered when it comes to athletes. And Zimbalist was basically saying, why do athletes get special treatment here? Aren't there other employee groups that would love to have that same protection? And I think that uh, could lead to an interesting discussion, but I think the the way that Zimbalist was posing his questions, it almost had a rhetorical feel to it, that the, the answer was suggested, at least from his standpoint, in how he posed the question. But Senator Murphy was very polite, and he did his best to answer. But there, there are a couple of things I, I want to point out about the response to Senator Murphy's framing of this issue. One is that when Zimbalist was asking his questions, and then he was offering some thoughts on the dire consequences that might result if athletes are employees and, and they have union rights and theoretically the right to strike or the schools have the right to lock them out. He was viewing those issues through the lens of institutional interest. And then he came back and talked about how, how much money would be drained from the system if these guys were treated as free Americans and got a fair salary or a fair piece of the revenue for their labors. And th th that goes back to the zero-sum thinking and the assumption that these athletics departments in the FBS have to be fully self-sustaining and that uh, the institution shouldn't have to pay a penny in direct institutional support. And that if these athletes get paid, then all of a sudden you're going to be stealing money from the general university operating revenues and funneling it to these football and men's basketball players. And that's purely speculative. I would love to see the details on that. Where are the details on that? And then he also made the argument later on that schools might have to just start cutting sports. The same arguments that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries made back in 2013, 2014, in the discussions about the full cost of attendance scholarship. And you had some of these same advocates saying with the certitude of an evangelical preacher that if the athletes got the full cost of attendance, then we would have to cut sports and it would be a threat to the Olympic movement and non-revenue sports and women's sports and Title IX, all, all this stuff. And that turned out to be a false fear. So where's the evidence of, of all these uh, parade of, of horribles that, that you lay out there? But in that framing, of the issues and the concerns and the opposition to athletes being deemed employees and perhaps having collective bargaining rights, 
the concerns are all institutional concerns. That's what I meant when I was saying earlier in the episode about where you stand. What's your starting point? What's your value system? Where's your heart? Senator Murphy's heart is with American principles of freedom and athletes' rights and civil rights. And through that lens, you look for solutions to the barriers that have been put up, not reasons to simply not even try. And when you look at it on the flip side of that through the institutional interests, and I think that was expressed in the way that uh, Professor Zimbalist responded to Senator Murphy's framing of the purpose of that bill. And those two views of the world can't be brought together in a coherent whole. And that is, as I said earlier, one of the problems in this whole discussion. And I discussed that in episode 98 and the NCAA's militant opposition to athletes as employees. And as long as that is still the case, and I, I hear it in different forms, and they haven't backed away from that. So they certainly haven't backed away from that in terms of what they want from Congress. Then I just don't see this debate going anywhere, and that puts a lot more pressure on the external regulatory pathway, because at the voluntary regulatory level, the NCAA and Power Five are still saying up yours to the athletes. And the other thing I think that's important to point out on this athlete as employee issue, that is a fact-based determination. It's not whether we want athletes to be employees based on our personal value system. The question is a fact-based inquiry into whether, in fact, they are employees based on the actual role they play with respect to their relationship to the institutions. What's the true nature of the relationship? That's not a preference. That is a determination. And it, it exists or, or it doesn't under objective rules that have been well-developed in labor law. We don't have to speculate about that because we have a template for that. And that was the Northwestern case in 2014. And there was zero discussion about that. Zero discussion. And in that case, I've talked quite a bit about that case when I was talking about that uh, really important year of 2014. And I titled that episode, The Student Athlete Gets Its Day in Court. And there was a full evidentiary hearing and thousands of documents and a dozen witnesses. You had days of testimony and then you had an opinion. And the central question there is, are these athletes functioning in terms of their actual functions, the actual things that they're doing? doing, not how the NCAA portrays them or whatever label they put on them, whatever their personal preference about that relationship should be. It's what is the relationship. And under the standard common law test of is there a contract for hire? Is there compensation? Are there services rendered in exchange for that compensation? And does the putative employer have control over the putative employee's work conditions? And the regional labor relations board said, check, 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 check. Yes. And it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close on the factual findings about what the Northwestern football players actually did for their university. And when the National Labor Relations Board on appeal by Northwestern basically uh, neutered the finding of the, the uh, regional board and said, look, we're not going to assert jurisdiction here. And they kind of punted, pun intended, on the central question of whether the, these athletes were entitled to form a union. But importantly, they did not disturb a single factual finding of the regional board. And I, I think those factual findings, that factual determination that the Northwestern football players were indeed employees under federal law influenced the the counsel, the general counsel to the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Bruzo, when in the fall of 2021, she issued a policy interpretation saying that these athletes are indeed 
employees, and she was not going to use the term student athlete. And in that regard, in opposition of the finding of the regional board, the Northwestern lawyers, and, and the NCAA was right behind this. They were cooperating with Northwestern, and they filed a, a friend of the court brief in that case, which was really distressing. And I haven't really gotten into that. I may do that in another episode. But their response was to cite uh, a case involving Brown University and student teaching assistance. And in that Brown case, the court said that the role that those student assistants played was primarily uh, one that was an educational role and it was not an employment role, in part because those student assistants got credit for the services they were providing that they claimed entitled them to employee status. And the university said, no, those are degree requirements. And that was true. But they drew this distinction between these student assistants being primarily students versus perhaps some level of employee. But they did this balancing test. And the Northwestern lawyers argued that that's the way that the national board should look at the athlete as employee issue. And that because the universities say that they're primarily students, then this Brown case governed. What hasn't gotten a lot of attention is, because that was in 2014, that Brown case was still good law. It was decided in 2004. But in 2016, in a student assistant case involving Columbia University, the National Labor Relations Board basically overruled the Brown case and rejected this sliding scale approach, which suggested that you couldn't hold the status of student and employee at the same time. And that's one of the biggest pieces of propaganda that's come out of this employee debate. And I think it was implicit in the way that Costas was talking about athletes as employees. And the NCAA and the Power Five and all their propaganda have tried to lead the public to believe that the uh, status of student and the status of employee are mutually exclusive and that student is the opposite of employee. And that is absurd on its face. And that's precisely what the uh, National Labor Relations Board said in this Columbia University case. You can have both. And the athletes in the Northwestern case, their lawyers made that same point right out of the blocks. This is a false choice, another false choice that the NCAA and Power Five have imposed on the marketplace and the regulation of college sports through propaganda. And that is Walter Byers' creation of the student-athlete in the mid-1950s in order to avoid workers' compensation liability. And it was a head-scratcher to me that that Northwestern case didn't come up. I think it was spot on in terms of the true relationship between these athletes and their institutions, not the way that the institutions want to label the relationship or propagandize it. So I, I want to close this out by talking about the remaining comments of Ms. McCullough. And I think they're really important, and the timing of them is important as well. So about an hour in, Ms. McCullough, I think, decides that she needs to try to get her message into the discussion. And she, she says, you know, that she played college soccer. And she acknowledges that her experience was really different from the experience of her football friends. And her father was a football athlete at UCLA. And she looks at the role that the football and men's basketball players have in this business model, the revenue that they generate and how their experience as revenue-producing athletes is different. And she says that unionization offers the ability of athletes to advocate for themselves in a way that they aren't really able to now. 
And she says, in, in my own experience, and again, most of, the, of this is based on my experience and the experience of a lot of friends through college and across campuses, but there are many instances when athletes often are coerced to not say anything about their programs. And then he, she talks about the uh, uh, abuse issues in women's sports. And then she talks about a football friend who was cut from his program for trying to advocate for his own health and safety. And I think that was during COVID. And then she says, unionization offers a promise for athletes to collectively bargain for rights that they're just not Granted, the reality is that there aren't health and safety mandates now. There aren't mental health protections. And, you know, that's been a big propaganda point for the NCAA, mental health, mental health, mental health. But they have put so much pressure on these athletes, not just the revenue producing athletes, that I think a lot of these athletes are really struggling and the institutions do not want to acknowledge the extent of that. And the reason that there are increasing mental health issues is in large part because of the business model where the athletes have no voice, they have no control. And they are 100% at the mercy of their coaches, their athletics directors, and all of the administrative personnel in the big-time college sports athletics departments. They have no voice. And that was what the athletes said at that June 17th hearing. And they, they made a very compelling case that there are very subtle ways in which that culture of silence, don't speak out, is reinforced at the institutional level. And Ms. McCullough goes on to say that the system is so oppressive that it has real impact on the athletes. And then she says this, and this is so, so important. I think she really had a good intuitive sense of how this discussion played out and how it was initially framed. She said, I think when we're talking about the theoretical bits of all this, we forget that fundamentally you go into this landscape as a teenager and you're forced to compete and lay your body on the line and your mental health on the line. And you sacrifice your educational benefits in order to perform. And then she goes on to say that collective bargaining and unionization is a solution that offers hope and offers promise for young athletes to sort of take some of their power back. So what she's saying there is that she understands that Bob Costas and Andy Zimbalist, and I think to a lesser extent, Michael Hausfeld, because as I'm going to discuss here, he came right back around after Ms. McCullough's comments there, and I think was a little more sensitive to, to some of these issues through the lens of, of the athletes, particularly athletes of color. And he finally says the M word, minority. It changed the debate. And I think in a subtle but effective way, Ms. McCullough steered the discussion back towards the reality of the athlete's experience and the reality of, the, of their perception of their role. Uh, and that reality stood in stark contrast to the as-if fantasy world portrayed at the beginning of the discussion and this romanticized view of the student-athlete and the primacy of the academic mission. Again, those are good theoretical bits, as Ms. McCullough said, but they don't comport with reality. And then Mr. Hausfeld makes a really important observation. I really liked the way he talked about this, he said, look, the principle behind collective bargaining is to provide labor peace. And it's a way to resolve tensions. And there are obvious tensions. He says, clearly college sports needs labor peace. And so I think he's starting to warm up to the idea that the athletes need a realistic 
and reliable and enforceable pathway to have a seat at the table. And again, he stops short, I think, of outright unionization when he talks about some kind of an association. And I think that's an interesting option, but I would love to hear more about that and how that could be achieved without the athletes having employee status as a predicate and then the protection of federal law. But, you know, we didn't have that discussion. And then Household makes that really important observation, labor peace, a really good framing. And Zimbalist comes back around and says, well, there can't be labor peace. It hasn't happened in professional sports and all this. But again, the, his intuitive response, Zimbalist's response was not to look at how we could have athletes with a seat at the table. It was, this can't work. And he just doubled down on that. And he got into all this stuff about how the opportunities, uh, the, we're going to be cutting teams and we're going to be cutting scholarships, all of the false dilemmas and divisive narratives that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been relying on. And Hausfeld came around to making some important athlete-friendly arguments. And then Costas jumped back in with the student-athlete speech and the primacy of education and the value of an education and that you know million-dollar degree and all that stuff. And then, and then Ms. McCulloch comes behind that and, and says, yeah, uh, I think that idea is great. We would love to be able to say that football players are getting adequate and fair compensation through their education. But I think to that point, the fact of the matter is they're not. The fact of the matter is they are not. That's the reality, not the as-if world, this fantasy world where every athlete takes class seriously and they're allowed to take class seriously, and then they go on to get that million-dollar degree. And she says, if we are using education as that shiny apple that we're holding in front of people, then there needs to be reform in place that education is actually happening and that students are actually graduating, especially students of color and students who come from diverse backgrounds, that they're getting the proper health and support to create an educational environment and an education that will help them in the long run. And she says that the institutions simply aren't doing that. And that's where the exploitation comes in because the ethics labor is being used exclusively to to perform and to generate money for the institutions. And she says, sure, we should value education more, but that's not what's happening out in the field. That's not the reality. And then Zimbalist comes back around and gives a parade wave to race. It acknowledges that the laborers are predominantly African-American in football, men's basketball. That 50% number is woefully low, by the way. And when you look at the, the high profile, the true high value athletes in football, men's basketball, they are overwhelmingly African-American. And I did that analysis with the Elite Eight and Final Four rosters in this year's March Madness tournament. And on those rosters, the most successful teams in that tournament over 80% of the athletes on, on those rosters, the high-value athletes, were African-American. And that's the reality of the contributions of African-American men in football and men's basketball. And it gets obscured by some watered-down statistics that the NCAA publishes, and then they get repeated by, by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And I guess I want to point this out, too. This is towards the very end of the discussion. We're about an hour and 30 
minutes in. And Symbolist wants to point out again that the details are important and it's really important. And he's, he is correcting Michael Hausfeld, who said that the NCAA generated $15 billion a year. That was an obvious misstatement. He was talking about the overall college sports marketplace. The NCAA only gets revenue from March Madness and its annual revenue is about $1.1 billion. And that's correct. But then in that same colloquy, Zimbalist goes on to make the noxious displacement argument, this argument that was ginned up by the Lead One organization and Tom McMillan and FBS Athletics directors. And he says, I think one of the things about nil, we're talking about nil now, is that a lot of the money that's supporting nil is money that used to go directly to the athletic department, used to be through sponsorships, all the kinds of endorsement deals that money is now being diverted to the student athletes. So that money in the nil market properly belongs with the athletics departments and it is being diverted to the student athletes. And you know who he's talking about there. He's talking about these high profile football and men's basketball players. But there is zero evidence to support that theory. I've talked about it quite a bit in connection with how it was uh, brought into the discussion in June of 2020 in the discussions about the Uniform Law Commission's attempt to get a uniform name, image, and likeness law passed. And then it was repurposed as the debate evolved and then into this new, less regulated nil market. And this was a powerful talking point for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that were stealing revenue that should be going to women's sports and Olympic sports and to aid institutions' efforts to comply with Title IX. But what's the evidence of that? What are the details there? We know nothing about this nil market. There's been zero attempt to try to get reliable data. The institutions are hiding the, their data on nil. They don't want the competition to know what they're doing. So maybe we could uh, make a demand, and whether it's enforceable or not, who knows, demand that the institutions provide data on the nil activity at their institution across sports, across demographics. Let's look at the data and let's do peer-reviewed studies to determine whether there has been any displacement and whether you're going to see schools cutting sports or eliminating scholarship or all the parade of horribles. Where are the details? Where's the evidence? So yeah, I agree. The details are important. The facts are important. The data is important. The evidence is important. So and I guess one last thing I, I would point out, and this goes back to how important it is to have the opportunity and the advantage of framing the issue at the very beginning of the discussion. And I wonder at this panel discussion, if Kaya McCullough had been the first person to speak, uh, and she was given the mic in response to a broad question about the state of college sports, just as Bob Costas was. If she said everything in that opening opportunity, that opening statement and the framing of the issues that she said over the course of this hour and 45 minute panel discussion where she only got five minutes, I wonder what the discussion would have looked like. I wonder if she'd gotten all those issues on the table. Her personal experience, the experience she observed in, with the revenue-producing athletes, the exploitation, the oppression, the lack of commitment to all of the principles that the institutional stakeholders have built their propaganda around, and then the, the need to have a, a meaningful seat at the table, particularly for people of color. If she had framed the issues initially around those themes, what does that 
discussion look like? All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.